0: Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. As you may very well know by now, I've just released a book based in part on material from the podcast and in part from new contributions. It's called What is Freedom? Conversations with Historians, Philosophers and Activists. And it's 12 very different perspectives from 12 very different people on what freedom is. So, as part of promoting that, it's currently out in the US and will be out in the UK 18th of February, so a couple of weeks. So, in fact, by the time you listen to this, it may well also be out in the UK, but either way, certainly available to pre-order. But as part of promoting that, I've been doing, like, a mini book tour and going on a few different people's shows. Um, I'm not going to share all of the interviews with you, but this one is an interview that I did, and I was pretty happy with it, and I thought it would fit well within this podcast's feed. So, this is an interview I did on the Elucidations podcast with my friend Mac Tagman of the University of Chicago, and we agreed to release it on both of our feeds. So um, if for whatever reason you don't want to listen to it on this feed, um, you can listen to it on Matt's Elucidations podcast, and I would check out the Elucidations podcast anyway. That's a really useful resource if you're interested in philosophy. And you like podcasts? That's definitely a must follow. Um, and then we're also going to release it on this feed, which is what you are about to listen to. I think the episode pretty much speaks for itself. We didn't take on the whole book, but we just discussed freedom and the liberty principle in John Stuart Mill. And we, I think, I'm going to title this an introduction to John Stuart Mill because there's quite a lot on Mill in this podcast, and I think this is a nice episode and one of the reasons I am putting it on my feed. If you wanted a place to start, if you weren't familiar with The Liberty Principle or Mill or On Liberty or any of that, if you hadn't come across it before and you just wanted to sort of get used to it before you go on to some of my sort of longer format or more detailed stuff, I think this is a really, um, well hopefully, it's a really useful introduction. So, I think that's all I'll say by way of um, introducing this introduction. Um, Apart from just a quick plug for the book, if you haven't already, uh, please do purchase and stroke or pre-order. It's available in paperback, hardback, and kindle from all good retailers, so please do check out the book. It's something I put a lot of love into and I'm really proud of. And if you do enjoy this show, I think it's a product that you'll like. Apart from that, let's get straight to it. For once, this is me being interviewed by Mac Tackman.
1: I'm Matt Teichman, and with me once again is Toby Buckle, host of the Political Philosophy Podcast, and the editor of a new book called What is Freedom? Conversations with Historians, Philosophers, and Activists from Oxford University Press, which is a um, print compilation of many interviews that he's done on his Political Philosophy Podcast. Uh, It's a great read. I highly recommend it. Toby Buckle is here to discuss John Stuart Mill's Liberty Principle. Toby Buckle, welcome.
0: Thanks so much for having me on, Matt. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, cheers. Great to have you back. I guess I'll interview you this time. Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm all yours. Ask away.
1: Yeah. So I imagine that most of our listeners are familiar with John Stuart Mill, but maybe not everybody. So maybe we could just start with like a quick little
0: capsule biography. Uh, who was John Stuart Mill? Yeah, terrific. So like you say, um... If people listening are doing a philosophy degree, they'll very, very likely have at least come across the name, certainly if you do a course on ethics or moral philosophy, if you do a history of political thought course, the name will come up. Uh, John Stuart Mill is a 19th century British political moral philosopher, writer on political economy. He had a pretty interesting life. Um, most famously, he had a really interesting childhood. He was the father of James. He was the son, sorry, of James Stuart Mill, um, a good friend of Jeremy Bentham's. And really famously, his childhood was an experiment to produce a genius, where he was learning Greek from age eight, and or perhaps even earlier. In fact, he actually worked most of his life in the East India Trading Company, which as an admirer of Mill, I see no reason to skirt around the fact that he was personally involved for a lot of his life in a pretty ugly form of colonial domination. That is just part of who this historical person was. He was also a member of Parliament. He was either the first or the second member of Parliament to call for votes for women, which is kind of cool. And he's just someone who has had a huge amount of impact in the history of moral thought the history of political thought, and like you say, he will turn up on all sorts of reading courses to this day. One final side to Mill, I'll maybe mention if people are getting to know him for the first time, is he often can have a bit of a reputation as something of a sort of stuffy Victorian moraliser, and he had that side. One thing that always helps me when I'm getting to read Mill, or I'm coming back to it, is he was also... In many ways a very emotional very sensitive person who got really hurt by certain things he went through for a lot of his life what we would now call severe clinical depression and would pull himself out of it and fall back into it again repeatedly through his early adult life and i think that adds a lot a lot of like background to reading him And to sort of feeling, not just the arguments, but the emotion that he's self-consciously trying to get into his works. But anyway, that's a short introduction to who this person is and and looking at them for the first time.
1: Yeah, I'm almost tempted to say this um, experiment in producing a genius via extreme parenting was successful in the sense that it did produce a genius, but maybe a little bit off the mark in that it seems to have caused a lot of
0: trauma. Yeah, and I mean, it's really hard, and I'm certainly not a psychologist, to sort of say if someone's experiencing trauma or depression, there sometimes may not be a clearly defined reason for it. And with Mill, it would seem like an A to B, you know, his upbringing to later depression in life. But you don't know. you you never you can get a feel for someone's ideas, but you're never quite in their head. And also what made him a genius, in many ways, was the things he did to pull himself out of his depression. So from his childhood, he had a lot of influences from utilitarianism. Also from ancient history, this is someone you really get in their work, is very, very fluent in the ancient world. But a lot of what he used to try and rebuild himself as a person wasn't history or abstract philosophy, it was romanticism and poetry, and a lot of what makes the works that Mill wrote later in his life just incomparably better than the early Mill is that he's trying to bring in a lot of the ideas and very flowery sometimes language and emotion that he's gained from romanticism and romantic poetry, and this is something I think where I can personally connect with Mill on, that pulled him out of cycles of depression, is that he fell in love. He had a sort of long, supposedly quite chaste, romance with a married woman, Harriet Taylor Mill. Supposedly, they waited until her husband died, they gave a polite two years, and then they married. And that informed a lot of his work as well, because she was much more sympathetic to socialism. And so in the works of the later Mill, you see him engaging with the socialist tradition in a much more open-minded way. It's also, by the way, an open question, if we're talking about the Liberty Principle, whether Harriet Taylor Mill or John Stuart Mill was the primary author of that text. I think that one is unsettled because they wrote a lot of stuff together and Mill himself credited her with being the primary author. So when we talk about this text as being written by Mill, it's worth keeping in mind it was at the very least a collaboration between two Mills, Harriet Taylor and John Stuart. So you mentioned earlier
1: um how incredibly influential John Stuart Mill's moral philosophy was. Um, And it's true. I mean, you see this remark all the time. People will say, you know, no chemist or physicist sees themselves as working in the shadow of an 18th century figure, a 19th century figure. And yet contemporary moral philosophers do see themselves working in the shadow of Immanuel Kant and John Stuart Mill. So he's really like one of the I I think fair to say one of the most influential uh, figures of the past couple hundred years in this area. So maybe we could talk a bit about the nature of his influence. Uh, In what way was he influential?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So what we're going to talk about today is the liberty principle, which is knowingly or not invoked in political discourse all the time. That may be his single most lasting contribution, but there are many others. In terms of where he fits within liberalism, it's complex, because if you remember what I said, he's pulling from the sort of classical liberal tradition he's pulling from, you know, Bentham and Ricardo and Adam Smith and all that. He's also pulling from romanticism and poetry, but he's also pulling to a degree from socialism and from ideas around egalitarianism that, to some extent, he got from his wife, Harriet Taylor Mill. And what you end up with, I think especially in the later mill, is a profile of a figure who's kind of a transitional form. He sits somewhere between a classical liberalism that's very focused on individual rights and protections, the free market, stuff like that. He has one foot on that, and one foot into what will become a modern progressive liberalism that supports things like the welfare state, that he has concerns about social justice and stuff like that. He's not either fully a modern liberal or fully a classical liberal. The metaphor I use is if you think about, like, the history of texts in liberalism, like almost like a fossil record, there's no moment where one species becomes another species. So if you think about, like, Archaeopteryx, this wonderful fossil we have of something that's clearly a dinosaur but also has feathers... It's like a step between a dinosaur and a bird. Mill's kind of like that in the liberal tradition. He embodies being both a classical liberal who is very, very interested in individuality. He never quite loses his belief in free markets, although he tempers it and qualifies it in a huge number of ways. But he's also much more radically egalitarian than most liberals at the time. He's also very concerned with what we would now call feminism, I guess he would call the emancipation of women. He's concerned, despite being part of the colonial project himself and being implicated in it himself, he's concerned with the rights of formerly enslaved peoples and so on. And that makes him kind of a complicated figure to assess for modern liberals, because both the sort of libertarian individualistic, you know, quote-unquote classical liberals will try and draw from him to sort of claim him for their tradition. But also, I think a lot of us now who are thinking about him are trying to claim him for a modern, progressive, egalitarian, uh, social justice-focused liberalism. And a number of the chapters in my book speak to that, as to, like, which strain of modern liberalism can really claim Mill. And I don't know. I think that with academic modern political philosophy, which often gets the clock started at Rawls, He's a figure in the history of political thought, but I think there's generally a feeling that he's one who we've surpassed, that something like Rawls is more comprehensive and systematic and analytic than Mill is, and really answers the big questions in more satisfying ways. I personally don't buy that, but perhaps we can get back into it but the short answer of how mill fits into the liberal tradition is he's kind of hard to categorize both in history and today and like i say he's a transitional form in the history of liberalism
1: yeah i completely agree with that characterization of mill he has uh you know one foot in two different and in some senses opposing traditions i feel like you get this phenomenon a lot where when the person's alive and they have a foot in each of two supposedly opposing traditions they have no friends when they're alive everybody's just attacking them when they're when they're alive and then after their death it's the opposite everyone wants to claim them and say that all along they were really one of us but yeah i totally agree with that characterization um uh and the, the more philosophers i know are like super cranky about utilitarianism and yet somehow they all still like mill even though he's one of the most influential purveyors of utilitarianism so it lives on today
0: What what a lot of people think is that you can read on liberty separately to utilitarianism you can kind of just say there's some stuff in on liberty i like and really he mentions utility about once in that text and so we can almost kind of just take one and forget the other i think that's many people's approach to mill um i i actually don't buy that read i think they are more connected and more coherent than perhaps some people think but that's a bigger story Okay, so let's
1: turn to the Liberty Principle, which is, uh, I think we could say, one of Mill's ideas that has had the biggest impact um, since he published On Liberty. What does the Liberty Principle say?
0: The only legitimate reason for coercing someone to action or coercing them to prevent them from taking an action, and that can either be state coercion or social coercion, is to prevent them harming others, that their own self-interest isn't sufficient reason. Mill gives us a few different formulations, and there's obviously a bunch of qualifiers and kinks in it, but at its simplest, it's the only legitimate reason for preventing someone doing something is to prevent them harming others, at its simplest. So the basic assumption here
1: is that coercion, in general, is morally wrong, But what this principle is doing is it's carving out an exception case. It's saying, okay, this is the one time you can coerce somebody into either doing something or prevent them from doing something. Uh, It's in this case.
0: Is that right? Is that the sort of logical shape of the principle? Yeah, or you can characterize it that way. You can also flip it and say coercion is the norm, but the exception is self-regarding actions, actions that only directly impact that individual it's it's trying to carve the world into two camps and you can debate which of those camps is the baseline but it's trying to basically give you a rule of thumb for sorting things into two categories other regarding which can be coerced and self-regarding that can't so maybe we could
1: run through some examples of these things Um, it seems like we have three categories we have matt does what he feels like doing and nobody gets in the way we have Matt tries to do something and someone else gets in his way and prevents him from doing it and that's unfair to Matt and then the third kind of case we have is Matt tries to do something and he's prevented from doing it but Matt actually shouldn't have been trying to do that so it was right to prevent him from doing it so maybe let's start with the first case Um, what's an example of me doing something uninhibitedly freely without anyone
0: getting up in my face Just to give a very basic case, you want to make a choice of whether you spend your free time playing chess or solitaire in the evenings. That's pure self-regarding. Okay,
1: okay. So then what would be an example of somebody unjustly preventing me from doing what I feel like
0: doing? So we can just take it from that would be a law that legally prohibited certain hobbies. So the government passes a law, say... That you can't play chess. No more chess. Or that say you have to play checkers. More consequentially, it might pass your law, or more realistically, I guess. Although governments have prescribed hobbies in the past, it might pass a law, um, prescribing what books you can read.
1: Yeah, I mean, for in Turkmenistan, not anymore, but um, about 15, 20 years ago, uh, video games were illegal in Turkmenistan, so it's actually not <laughs> completely unheard of.
0: No, and there, and there still are fringe cases here where you get like one of these hostile or saw movies or something and even fairly liberal censors are just like no okay we're drawing a line here but but yes um those are like pure self-regarding and an effort to prohibit them would run afoul of the liberty principle
1: Okay, good. And we'll get back to what's unjust about it. I think maybe if we look at an example of one where I'm justly prevented from doing something, that'll help us understand what was unjust about me not being allowed by law to play chess. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what would be the third type of example? One where I am totally justifiably blocked from doing something that I want to do.
0: Um, you are arrested for attempting a violent mugging
1: okay good yeah that seems totally clear no one's going to disagree with that example (laughs) be like no matt
0: has the right to violently mug somebody i'm giving you like really clear cases right because of course that's that's what we want to start with yeah borderline cases but yeah
1: (laughs) okay so we have our three examples and how could we use john Stuart mills liberty principle to explain why it's okay to block matt from mugging somebody but it is not okay to
0: block matt from playing chess alone in his house right great so Mill's answer to you there will be actually pretty different to how a modern liberal would answer that question, even if they agree with the conclusions. I think most liberals of most stripes will agree with the examples we've given. The, yeah, I've never met anybody who's like pro-mugging, <laughs> pro-random the, mugging. You say this with whatever you think of, there will be someone. Um, but, yeah, so, especially with the internet. What a modern liberal would do is they would probably invoke the language of rights. They would say, "Well, I have a right to dot dot dot, but you don't have a right to my personal property and so on. That's not how Mill thinks at all, and he starts on liberty by saying, "I reject any appeal based on the idea of an abstract right. And he says, everything I'm appealing to here, which is, remember I said earlier, that it actually isn't as inseparable from his utilitarianism as you might think. He says, all of my appeals are to, quote, um, liberty in the largest sense as the permanent interests of man as a progressive being, end quote. Here's what Mill's interested in. Big picture, Little picture, writ large, writ small. Big picture, you remember I said he's someone who's very fluent in the ancient world, and Mill's big takeaway from that is how different different ages and different societies and different classes of people are from each other in terms of their customs, their traditions, what they like to do. So the big picture is he's a pluralist but not a relativist. He sees this huge range of different types of societies. But he doesn't think they're all equal, necessarily. I think he tends to think they all get some stuff right and some stuff wrong. And he wants us to move forward into better states of society. So he's a progressive... And so pluralism but not relativism means
1: there could be more than one type of best society, but there still is a distinction between
0: good versus bad societies. Correct. And pluralism also just in the descriptive, in the, as a matter of history a lot of very, very different types of society have existed, and by implication, a lot of different types of societies can exist in the future, but not relativism in that all of those possible futures are necessarily equal to each other. Some will be better than others, and we want to move towards the better ones, but without there ever being A final end point. There's no specific vision of utopia that he's trying to move us towards. He's just saying we have a range of possible worlds we can move into and we want to move into the
1: better. I can hope all future states of the world are one in which I'm allowed to play chess without having any more detailed ideas about what it's going to look like than that.
0: So why does allowing you to play chess get us into those better future states of the world? Well, because if the writ large is social progress, the writ small is individual progress, often called self-development. This is the idea that, again, about people, he's a pluralist but not a relativist. So he thinks people have all sorts of different ideas and hobbies and things that they like to do and opinions that they might want to form. Those aren't all of equal value. But here's the crucial bit. He believes that allowing people the free choice to pick and choose what opinions they hold, what hobbies they have, what types of relationships they want to engage in, that sort of thing, will overall lead those people to develop and improve and be more valuable people, both for themselves, but also more valuable people for others. And there's two sides of that. It's that being able to freely choose, you're more likely to pick the good stuff. But there's another side to that, which is the mere act of choosing, is valuable and enriches you and helps you grow and develop. And if someone merely told you to do the good things, that would be a sort of childlike obedience rather than a human being in full possession and maturity of their faculties. So that is the backdrop. Why is it wrong to stop you playing chess? Well, because if we want the most people to have the most of this self-development, And as a result of us having more valuable people, have more valuable societies and move into those better states of the world, if we want most people to have the most self-development, you need some sort of rule of adjudicating between that, because people will get in each other's way. You know, I'm using my free choice and self-development to mug you, versus I'm using my free choice and self-development to play chess. So I think the question Mill is asking is something like this. What's my maximizing principle? You can't, like, get all of it all the time because people's, what they do with their free choices will conflict with each other, right? So what's my maximizing principle? If what I'm really trying to get at is this the beautiful phrase from Mill, free development of individuality, that's the entire philosophy in three words, that's the beginning of chapter three on liberty. If I'm trying to get the most free development of individuality, what's a rule of thumb that will tend to lead a society to getting to more of it rather than less of it? And that's the liberty principle. And so the way it works, pretty obviously, is if the way you're freely developing your individuality doesn't directly affect others, then you can do as much of it as you want and you should do as much of it as you want and Mill wants you to do as much of it as you want, ergo no one can stop you playing chess. To the extent that it does come into conflict with other people's choices, it doesn't mean you have to constrain, but then you go to a more direct form of consequentialism. You just ask like, what's a welfare maximising rule here? And so you could well argue preventing violent muggings is a welfare maximising rule. Now, that was quite long, but note, that's just a very different way of thinking about why there should be, like, rights protections on our choices, our opinions, and so on, than modern liberalism. Modern liberalism would just sort of posit these rules as, like, you have a right to this, right, and maybe derive them from some sort of abstract system by rules, like Rawls does. Mill has a very human good at the heart of it. He has a vision of what he thinks is good for people. And he's sort of following forward to thinking, how can I get the most of it? And that's the ethical foundation of the Liberty Principle.
1: Okay, nice. So if I'm understanding the idea right, it's that we like freedom. We want to maximize it. We want everyone to have as much freedom as possible. The more freedom every individual person can have, the better. And I liked your point, by the way, about freely choosing to do something and that being enriching for a person, I think that's pretty intuitive. Um, One example that jumped to mind is, um, let's say I would like my daughter to learn how to play the piano. She's just going to both enjoy it more and get better at piano if she voluntarily decides to practice every day rather than me just forcing her to do it. I mean, sure, she might learn it a little bit if I force her to do it, but she's really going to learn it if she's self-directed and just completely voluntarily practicing every single day. And it seems like Mill wants to extend that intuition out to pretty much all of our activities. Like the more we freely choose them, the better they are for us, the more enriching they are. Yes.
0: yeah. Um, that's exactly and then it
1: seems right. like the game is given that we want everyone to have just dial up their freedom to the max because that's just good. It's more freedom, the better. Should we just do that? Well, no, because if everyone lives maximally freely, they're going to start just like trampling all over each other. They're going to like get in the way. They're going to bump into each other. They're going to conflict. The freedoms are going to conflict. So what should we say about that then? How can we still have as much freedom as possible without everyone walking all over each other? And so it seems like the answer here is like, well, we want to like have some principle for attaining equilibrium. You know, how can we acknowledge this fact that freedoms are going to conflict with each other, but have kind of like, you know, mathematically you might call it like a greatest lower bound situation. How can we draw the line? like as high as possible to how much freedom everybody should have stopping just shy of where they start conflicting how can we find that exact limit and then the answer is ah well we have this liberty principle which says um you know you should live your life as freely as humanly possible stopping just shy of the point where you start harming
0: another person so is is that the idea that's exactly it and what follows from that is that this is a rule of thumb that will not necessarily give you an exact answer in every single situation. Most stuff will. You know, mugging is clearly out. Chess is clearly in. But one of the concerns about the liberty principle that people have is that there are plenty of areas that are pretty grey and will depend on context, will depend on what you think is a relevant harm and so on. And the liberty principle, I think self-consciously isn't trying to sort all of that out in advance for you. It's trying to say look, this is the good I think we're trying to promote, and this is sort of a framework for how we might maximize that good, but in any individual case of applying that framework, there is going to be a bit of context and judgment as to how we do so.
1: Right. And I think that's a feature shared by, like, most legal principles we employ. You know, they give us sort of a ballpark. But then uh, whenever we have all the details of a specific case before us, that's when we want to exercise our contextual judgment. And indeed, that's the way our court system is designed. We have a judge. Like, it's literally in the title of the person (laughs) to, you know, make a very carefully considered reasoned judgment based on all the details of the case using... The legal principle as a starting point, but not as a definitive algorithm, uh, robotically mapping inputs to outputs
0: for every possible input. Right. And I think some people's criticism, the probably the most common criticism of the Liberty principle, is that it isn't a robotic algorithm that just spits out answers in advance. And so the analogy to a judge is exactly right. So Take, for instance, um, the rules of when you would have evidence being admissible in court. There are plenty of rules to do with this, right? So just by way of example, a confession which is beaten out of a suspect is inadmissible. And you can say that's a pretty good rule, which is to say, like, it's a good best practice for maximising certain goods to do with justice that we care about. And it'll do a lot of work, like, 95% of cases will clearly fall in and out. But you can also think of plenty of grey areas, like, say, the detective is threatening and loud but doesn't put hands on the person, you know? You can think of cases, and those legal principles... One that I was thinking of is, like, what if the first, you
1: know, two hours of the confession was completely honest, and then in the last second of the confession, someone walks in and beats the person? Does that invalidate the whole first two hours of Mm. of the part where it was honest?
0: No um, there's situations like that too without being a lawyer, how courts will tend to solve that is they will look at the totality of what happened, they will look at are there past cases that we can draw from in order to inform our practice, and then they will make a judgment call. you know there is a judgment call that is there, and the same thing is true with the liberty principle there are cases that get a bit borderline, so on the one hand, private consenting sexual activity is self-regarding, right? Again, private consensual but but what about, say the sale of sex work? Well, then that gets a bit more complicated because while the liberty principle does speak to um your right to trade goods for services. I think between two individuals it would be fine, but say you have an industry involved in some form of sex work that employs hundreds of people, you're actually getting to the point now where you're doing something that affects others. Setting prices, setting wages is a social act, because if I pay my employees one amount, that affects what other employers can pay. And... Yeah.
1: Putting an industry in place sets up incentives for other people to participate
0: in the industry yeah. as well. And then questions like, what role is there for the government to pass laws that would, say, protect the safety of sex workers, say, or say, speak to the rights of clients not to get scammed or something? And Mill himself, I use that example because that's Mills, he says, prostitutes should be free to work, but that doesn't entirely imply that the government couldn't regulate brothel owners. Like, that's where you begin to get into the other-regarding side. Now, exactly where you draw the line there is a judgment call. And it's a judgment call that you make using the liberty principle. It's a tool of analysis. So just like you would ask in court, was this confession obtained under violence or threat of violence? That's the question you ask doesn't always have an answer in advance. With the liberty principle, you would say, would a law say, you know, requiring certain health and safety regulations for sex work, would that be done to prevent harm for others, or is that being done simply to protect people from themselves? You might not know the answer in advance, it's just that's the question you're supposed to ask, and you're not supposed to ask it for its own sake, you're supposed to ask it because mill thinks we have good reason to believe that if we consistently ask that question that's a good way of getting the most of this free development of individuality that he's concerned by
1: okay so the liberty principle says matt has the right to sit in his home and play chess because well by default he has the right to do anything freely and the only way he wouldn't be able to play chess would be if his playing chess somehow got in the way of other people's freedom, but it doesn't. He's just sitting alone playing chess. It affects nobody. So carry on, Matt. On the other hand, with mugging, it seems pretty clear that if Matt walks up to somebody at random and forces them to give him their wallet at knife point, he clearly is not merely exercising his freedom, but stomping over somebody else's freedom. Uh, So that's out. We shouldn't let Matt do that. That's the general strategy for explaining uh, the difference between those two cases. And you drew an interesting contrast between that versus like a rights-based explanation of the difference between those two cases. So I guess the idea would be something like Matt has an inalienable right to sit at home and do stuff like play chess versus people walking down the street having an inalienable right to be able to walk down the street and not get mugged or something. So what's exactly is wrong with the rights-based explanation? You mentioned that Mill was kind of cranky about it in on Liberty. Why should we favor the
0: freedom-maximizing explanation over the rights-based explanation? They're just different explanations, um, and it's a very deep question that you've just asked, so I'll try and do my best with it. Mill isn't entirely adverse to the idea of rights, but the way I would look at it when I invoke rights language is rights are just the other side of rules, right? That if I think the liberty principle is a good rule for maximising these particular moral and political goods that I care about, then actually getting that rule used in the world may well involve creating a system of rights, right now
1: yeah sometimes people talk about like obligations and entitlements having this dual relationship one person's obligations uh, are connected to another person's entitlements
0: yeah so what i'm not arguing against um is that there's no place for rules the question is a more abstract one of how do you get to the rules why do you think the rules are good rules in the first place now there's an instinctive discomfort with consequentialism. A lot of people start from the place that there's just kind of something off about utilitarianism. And although Mill doesn't really talk about utility a lot in On Liberty, the moral values he's based in are clearly consequentialist ones right, when we're saying we want people to be self-developing and growth and autonomous, it's just sort of a very expansive definition of happiness, right, which is what he means is utility in the broadest sense. That's what that term means. And so because people feel like utilitarianism can't be the right answer, they sort of feel like something else must be. There must be either some Kantian logical deduction we can do to just get to a system of rights Or, you know, ala the American founding, these things are just freestanding and obvious. Any sort of sentient human being can appreciate these things. God put them there. You know, the rules are just the rules. Ours is not to reason why, ours is just to do and die, right? But I think people want to put that the rules are here because of some clever logical proof I have, or the rules are here because of God, or because of, like, something Kant said, Because if the alternative is just consequentialism, people, I think often without necessarily a strong reason, feel that consequentialism must just be wrong. And so they sort of shy away from that side of it. Why do I like it better to say, have a degree of comfort with consequentialism? Because it's right, and it's grounded in something real. Like, people are happy or unhappy, they do suffer... They do experience pain, and that is a very obvious fact about the world. And if you ask, well, why is pain bad, you are invited to put your hand on a hot stove. Like, like, like there just has to be a bedrock somewhere, and that we don't like to suffer is hitting that bedrock. Why are we pretending that there's some set of rules that can be justified neutrally from those set of judgments, where just the reality of getting up in the morning and going to work shows that there's not. I'll stop there.
1: Okay, yeah, so it seems like the idea is, okay, sure, you can say Matt has a right to play chess, but he doesn't have the right to go mug people. But you still kind of want to know, like, well, where do these rights come from? I mean, in a way, if I just said that, I would just kind of be, like, restating the phenomenon. Well, okay, fine, yeah. We have the intuition that Matt has the right to play chess, and he doesn't have the right to go mug people, but why? You know, where does it come from? And then, so then there's different tacks you could try to take to explain where these rights uh, come from. You could try to explain it uh, just by saying, well, we're not going to explain them, which some might argue is (laughs) what the divine command explanation is, is that, well, you know, God just put them there. We got to do what he says. Another explanation you might try to give is Kant and Descartes, I think, also uh, gave lines in this argument where they sort of tried to deduce from like self-evident principles that X, Y, Z is a right kind of in a you know, very similar format to like a math proof. Um, and then what Mill is offering us perhaps is a third strategy for trying to explain where these rights come from. That's a lot more grounded in common sense and things you can actually concretely observe and study. What makes people happy? Let's just look at, you know, are these people over here happy? Are these people over here not happy? Let's just look at that and try to draw some conclusions. You know, it's almost like a little bit more like we're using the scientific method. Uh, So it seems like that's kind of the pitch for this approach to determining how much freedom should we give people.
0: Yes, and there's a lot of concerns with that approach. You know, the concern with grounding your politics in a comprehensive moral vision is that it'll lead to telling other people what to do. The difference is, with liberal consequentialism, is that we think choice is good for people. You know, this vision will involve coercion, but it'll, it'll carve out big areas of personal choice. So there's a limiting principle in Mill. I think the worry with grounding it on a comprehensive moral vision is that there's no limiting principle. But there clearly is here. The limiting principle is we think choice is valuable right? And you want to preserve choices wherever possible. Now, there's a broader question, is is your ultimate framing device rights or justice or freedom? And I think there's a similar sort of concern behind that, which is freedom just seems so open-ended and so up for contestation, whereas rights and justice seem a little more concrete. Like, you can get lists of rights, right? Universal Declaration or the UN or whatever. You can get principles of justice. It feels a bit more grounded. Interestingly, they also date quickly. (laughs) Yes. But, But precisely for the reason... That rights and justice discourse are more amenable to producing lists but those lists are never stable or permanent or universally accepted or free from contestation or free from challenges everyone has the right to sell their donkey or you know oh okay that's so relevant to me right now yeah and and rights get adjusted and reformulated all the time right so yes freedom thinking about it can feel a little bit like staring into the howling void at times, because it doesn't seem to offer you as clear guidance for how we should act and what the rules are than, say, rights or justice might. But that's kind of the point of it. We don't have clear guidance. We have a best guess about what's good for people. But, like, yeah, you are going to have to think for yourself. You are going to have to make judgments, and you're going to get it wrong people are going to get it wrong and do horrific things. And that's scary, but it's also kind of exhilarating. And it's a very demanding vision of the world. It demands that people think for themselves in terms of, do you want to play chess or not? You demand of your daughter, not in a literal sense, but saying, well, do you want to learn to play piano or guitar? And like, sometimes people just want to say, look, just tell me what to do. I know we don't, liberals don't like to think of it this way, but that's a very human instinct. Your daughter might just say, Look, I don't know, daddy. Just tell me which instrument I should play. And the liberal vision is kind of committed to not doing that, to saying, Well, I'm not going to tell you what instrument you should play, but I can tell you maybe how I would make the decision. I can tell you about the two different instruments so that you have more information. But that is a very demanding vision of what we're asking of individuals, and it's a very demanding vision of what we're asking of societies, in that, like you said earlier, there's not just this logical algorithm that's going to spit out answers. We are going to, do have, to have to do the hard and dirty work of living together, and the best a philosophy can provide for us is frameworks, ways of thinking that are perhaps better than other ways of thinking. And when it comes to freedom, that's people's great fear that it is just so much more vague and all over the place but the world is
1: you know toby buckles edited volume what is freedom conversations with historians philosophers and activists is out now so get it while it's hot it's an excellent read one thing i think is very cool about it is All the discussions are very clearly within the realm of political philosophy, but the guests come from very diverse backgrounds. Some of them are big, fancy philosophy professors. Some of them are political organizers. Um, And I think uh, you really get a a more well-rounded consideration of the questions via all those diverse perspectives. So Toby Buckle, thank you so much for maximizing everyone's utils by coming on this podcast.
0: (laughs) I'm not sure I did that, but uh, cheers for having me on. Thanks so much, man.